This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is Glennon Doyle. If you don't already know, she's the best-selling author of Untamed. Today, we're talking about Glennon's new book, a journal called Get Untamed, How to Quit Pleasing and Start Living. In it, Glennon walks us step-by-step through the process of excavating our own inner truths so that we can imagine and begin building the life we want. As always, she dares us to dream, to be bold, and to question our self-limiting beliefs. It was a joy to get to speak to Glennon about all of this. I hope you'll find much of what she shares today to be resonant or clarifying. Let's get right to my chat with Glennon Doyle. Hi. Hi, Erica. I, I think the work that you've done just in your manuscripts, in the books, has help people make such transformative change in their everyday life. And so this journal, like Untame the Journal, is, it's interesting because I feel like you've already made people journal <laughs> before this book came out. Like they're just like, I'm reading these books and I'm just going to find my own way. But I, I'm really curious, like why you felt like you wanted to put the toolkit into something that people could could utilize. Like, why did you feel what you'd already written wasn't enough. Well, I mean, I guess because people kept asking me, well, I wrote Untamed as a memoir. Okay. So usually when you write a memoir, people don't follow it up with, but how do we do that? Right? Like Love Warrior, (laughs) (laughs) like after Carry On Warrior, after Love Warrior, nobody was like, okay, I liked your book, but how do I become a love warrior? Like nobody, that wasn't a thing, right? But constantly after people read untamed people would ask okay that's great that you got yourself untamed i think what they meant by that was you found a way to start living in accordance to your insides it's what you really wanted as opposed to what the whole world expected of you right so that's great that you were able to do that how do i do that and i guess it makes sense that people would ask that about untamed and not the other two because The other two were more strictly, my first two books were more strictly memoir and Untamed really is about a process that happens to us over time, which is social conditioning, right? That we're born kind of these wild, unique beings and we sort of live by intuition and feeling and imagination. And then our social conditioning happens to us, which is that the world says to us in a million ways, okay, just tone it down. You're a girl. 
or like, no, we don't talk like that. You're a Christian or we don't, you're a, you're an American. You're a, you know, whatever it is, all these little cages that we get put in. So then we start to play roles instead of living by who we are on the inside. So I guess the good news is if that, if that does happen to us, if social conditioning does happen to us and most social scientists believe that it does, right? We all stop acting. We all stop living as who we are and instead start living as who the world tells us to be. Then the process of deconditioning can happen. So I think that's what people were asking me. Okay, great. If we if we now are living as who the world wants us to be instead of who we actually are, how do we get back to that person we were before the world told us who to be, right? Like for, you know, when I met Abby and suddenly felt like, oh, wait, like I, it's like the world gave me a menu when I was little and was like, here's your choices for faith. Here's your choices for sexuality. Here's your choices for gender, all of it. And then I just kept ordering off the menu and felt so uncomfortable inside of my life. And when I saw, when I met Abby, I was like, oh, maybe my best fit wasn't on that menu, right? I, I constantly in all of my, in my family structure, in my marriage, in my sexuality, in my faith, in every category, I've had to go off menu completely to find a fit that made me feel like I could even live in my own life in my own skin. And so I think that's what people were asking. How do we get ourselves off menu? How do we return to ourselves? And I didn't do anything about it. I mean, I, I mean, I would laugh. I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wrote my, if I knew more things, I would have put them in the book. I didn't like save anything. Like everything I know is in there. Right. But then I started thinking, actually, for sure, I don't have any answers for anyone because that's, that's the, what's one thing I know for sure is that each, everybody is living an unprecedented, unrepeatable experiment, which is their life. And nobody else knows what you should do. Nobody else has the answers for you, but there are questions, right? There are questions that you can ask yourself that I have noticed with people over time can kind of activate their own answers, right? So for example, when you start asking yourself, well, what was I trained or conditioned to believe is, makes a good girl, right? Or makes a good partner, makes a good wife. That, that part, part of that is the very beginning of the journal. And it's like, you really do start to unearth these beliefs that you have that, you, that are so ingrained in you right? You don't even know. You don't even know what they are, but they're controlling your decisions in your life. So there are questions that you can ask of yourself that sort of bring to life this dormant self that you haven't consulted in a very long time. And I started seeing that happen in you know, interviews I was doing, conversations I was having with people that there were certain questions I could ask that would kind of bring them to life. And that's when I decided, huh, maybe I could write this journal. I wanted to call it an experiment because I think journal is like the most boring word. Um, <laughs> I still don't remember why they wouldn't let me call it an experiment. But anyway, it is an experiment. It's, it's, it's like a dive. It's, I'm not in an out, outer adventure, Erica. Like I don't, I'm married to one. She wants to do things outside all the time. She wants to like go hiking, go scuba diving, go snorkeling, whatever all this crap is that all these go traveling, <laughs> go, you know, if the sentence start or the suggestion starts with go, my, my guard is all the way. <laughs> yeah. Like, mm, I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, we've talked, we've talked, we've talked about that. <laughs> yeah. So I, but, but I do feel like my life is a great adventure. It's just an internal adventure. I can stay home for days and never leave and still feel like I had great adventures. And that's because my internal life is where I explore, right? So I'm never going to be able to write a travel guide for anybody, but I can be an inner exploration tour guide. And that's what the journal is. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best 
from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. When we met many months ago, it felt a lot of similarity to your connection to your interior life. I was very much like, oh, I'm, I'm like that too. Like there is so much going on inside that I don't really need to go out in order to feel that. And I think the pandemic as painful and challenging as, as it's been, I think for some people, I can really maybe only speak for myself has given me more permission to be more internal without as much guilt. I definitely feel right now as we're moving into a different stage of the pandemic where the social conditioning is is coming back really strong and the expectation, especially going into this time of the year, I think it's a beautiful reminder to know that you can have a lot of adventure within yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think even in this conversation, for me, it's a beautiful reminder to just hold that Yes. That interior experience with a lot of intensity because the social conditioning is that you don't need yourself and that you need to constantly be in deep connection and collaboration with others in order to feel a sense of purpose. And that's not necessarily true. And maybe even outside of that, not necessarily being true, I think we always need to be thinking about like, what is the dosage of interaction that I need? And I think the conditioning doesn't remind us you can like if you ever go get boba tea you know you can be like I want it 20% or 50% sugar or 75% so I'm I'm sticking with the menu idea of like we also can do the things that are on the menu but just decide like how much of it we want even if we want to stick with the menu we were given so many of us who are wired more internally who are wired more introverted who are highly sensitive we just had to fit ourselves into this world that was just only treated everybody as if we were all extroverts, as if we all worked that way. And then if we didn't, if that didn't serve us, we felt like there was something wrong with us, right? We just kept like, what do we need? Do we need more Red Bull? Do we need more like to keep ourselves going <laughs> out there, right? Um, yeah. And I don't know about that. Like, I think there's a lot of us who are what we're wired for maybe a different kind of life, like what you're saying. And, and, and I think it's, it's interesting. I have so many friends who are like me and are having so much anxiety right now about having to do all the old normal again, right? Just like all the interactions, all the outside. And I think it's interesting when, when, you, when you think about it in terms of conditioning, it does have to do with social interaction. It does have to do with energy. It has to do with how we fuel. But I think it also has to do with all the expectations of the outer world. It is the conditioning. Like when we when we are in our own selves, we get to be our weird, unique selves. Like we're not out there with all of this. This is how you act at a restaurant. This is how you act in a conversation. This is how you make small talk. This is how you, like, this is how you behave here. All these mandatory acts we have to put on out there that we didn't have to do during COVID. We just actually got to like settle into ourselves and be our weird little unique creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, I hope that, I hope we get to take some of that weirdness. I hope people don't, you know, go right back into all the roles that we have to play and all the scripts that we have to stay on. And I hope people bring some of the weirdness that they found during COVID into the outside world. I definitely I'm still very much just try trading like how much exposure makes sense for me. And I I really feel like it's an important practice for for everyone to kind of lean into. And I think with the journal, there's an opportunity. It's actually like a perfect time, I think, for 
for, for this for this journal in the sense of how do I reorganize myself and get to know myself better as the world is continuing to reopen and expand and expect things that might not make sense anymore. And I, and I think one of the things you, you bring up in, in the journal is this idea of like, what, what cage are you most desperate to break out of? And I think you really related it to food and, you know, your relationship with it over the years mm-hmm. and the kind of, you know, disordered eating and, and, and those pieces. And I think, especially going into the holidays, I'm, I'm really curious just how you, how you connect like your desire to step out of a cage being so related to how you nourish yourself. Cause sometimes when, when people start to ask like, what's the cage I'm getting out of, they'll, there might be like a relational cage or a vo- vocational cage, like my job, or, but I think there's something really powerful about the relationship between caging and hunger and you, and in your experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like when you say it like that, it makes me think of, you know, appetite, desire, appetite and desire are so well the same, I guess. And those are things that are caged for, for women, for many women, especially, right? Because we're not supposed to want, we're not supposed to be hungry. We're not supposed to desire. We're not supposed to be ravenous in any way. We're not supposed to be ambitious, all of those things. And I think when I was a little girl, for whatever reason, no, I know for exactly what reason, because of my culture and my family and all things, I learned that girls are supposed to stay small that what matters, what makes a girl worthy is her beauty. And what makes a girl beautiful is her smallness. Okay. That is the message that I learned from 70 trillion gazillion media messages from my actual family from, from everywhere. And so I listened, I pay attention. Like that's one thing that I do in my life. And that's why I'm a good artist. And that's why I'm an activist. And that's also why as a 10 year old, I heard the messages loud and clear about the way to be a good girl. And I found a way to be hungry and satisfy my desire and appetite, but also stay small. And that was bulimia, right? So I could indulge my hunger, binge, and then purge and stay small. And so when I, I was bulimic for 15 years from the time I was 10 to the time I was 25. And then when I found out I was pregnant with my little boy, who's now 18, I got sober from, from alcoholism and from, from food addiction. Now, what I would say is that I am sober from food addiction in like practice. Like if you watched me throughout the day, you would think, oh, she's a normal, healthy human being. Okay. From the outside, (laughs) like my behaviors are normal, but my thought patterns about food are still very disordered and they get more disordered when weird, stressful times in my life. Like anytime when things feel out of control, I can sense the compulsive thoughts coming back from food. So, you know, what that will look like is just like on bad days, you know, 50, 60% of my thoughts are about like, what did I eat yesterday? What am I going to eat tomorrow? Did I eat too much? Is my blah, blah. And so that is a cage, right? That kind of compulsive thinking is a freaking cage because it keeps me trapped in this small little life. Like when I think about the opportunity cost of those thoughts, like how much art I could have made with those thoughts, how much love I could have offered myself and other people, how much activism I could have been involved in if I had this stupid ass thoughts back. And that's the cost of, of our condition conditioning, right? So yeah, I just, it's amazing. Like you can write the experiment. I did wrote the journal and then I made myself do it start to finish. And I think I could do it every year and and, and my answers will be completely different. That's what's amazing about living from yourself is that it's a constant adventure because it's never the same. Like it's reliable, your inner self, it's reliable because it's always there. Home is always there to fall back into yourself, but it's always different what you land inside of, right? Like the emotions, intuition, the imagination, whatever is there that you're landing in is different. So this time I just really decided, all right, you got to get your shit together about this food stuff. Cause you know, let's see, it's been 30 effing years 
And then Abby, we went to this like place for three days because I was struggling with that and also struggling because my boy left for college and I got back into meditation and I don't know why I can't just remember that that's always going to help me because every time I get back into it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is how I calm the hell down. This is how I remember everything's okay. This is how like, but then I forget and then I stop doing it. And then I end up living in my brain again, which is not a good place to be for me. So, so that is how right now at this moment in my life, I am untaming from that cage of food is, is I, I'm, I've stopped trying to control my thoughts and make them more sane about food. And I'm remembering that I just can't listen to them at all. I'm like dropping down to a different place which is, so I'm just kind of noticing that insanity about food and I'm looking at it with, you know, kind of like amusement and, and grace, I guess, but I'm trying to live in the place that is not that, that is beneath that. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. I'm really curious about this concept that you bring up in the journal about an up self versus a down self. How do you pendulate between the two of those? Well, the up self and down self was something that I figured out a long time ago when I was really, there's, I, I have, I, I don't even like to say struggle with, I live with depression and anxiety and I, you know, figured that out through doctors, through many avenues a while ago when I got sober, because I think for so long, I thought that alcohol was my problem. I thought I was an, I was an alcoholic and that was the problem. And, and that is, was not completely true. The, the truth was that I have anxiety and depression and I was using alcohol as a self-medication for that anxiety and depression. Right. So it took me a while to get to the, the problem beneath the problem. And what happened, medicine saved my life. I've been on Lexapro for for a long time and I'm so grateful for it and obsessed with releasing the stigma of about about antidepressants because it's a damn shame. But I I noticed this phenomenon which I now know is common among us anxious and depressed bunnies which is that we will be on our medicine for a long time. It's called, well it's just like meditation, right? We'll be on our medicine for a long time and then it will, it will save us. We'll start feeling like a normal human being again. And then our reaction to that will be, you know what? I don't need this damn medication. medication. <laughs> Erica, good. I don't know. It's like, it is exactly like being in a storm, right? And finding an umbrella and putting up the umbrella and then feeling dry and cozy and wonderful and being like, I'm dry and cozy and wonderful. I don't need this damn umbrella. And then putting the umbrella down and wondering why we're like soaking wet again, right? It's like this thing that we do where we convince ourselves, oh, we're normal. We don't need the medication. So I did that at one point. I went off my medication. I, you know, three months later, four months later, five months later, it was just an absolute mess again. And then I noticed this thing happens, which I've talked to my friends and it's not just me is that sometimes we're in our down depressed self, right? And we're in our home and we realize, okay, we need help. We need help again. I need help. So we call whoever, we call the doctor, we call the therapist, we call the friend, but then they can't talk to us right away. We have to make an appointment. Okay. And by the time the appointment comes a week, two weeks, whatever later, we're okay again. Or that's, or when we sit down in the office we're, we feel okay, or we just don't know what to say to describe that moment that we reached out that was so low and dark, 
right? Because it's light now or in an office. We're people pleasers. We want to make this person think we're okay. Like it's just a different self that shows up for the appointment. So then we end up saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. I probably just need to, you know, take more walks. So what I realized was when I'm at that low, low moment, I need to write a note to myself. Okay. Whenever I am in the rock bottom, in the lowness, in the depths of it, and anyone who's ever been to this place will, will know what I'm saying without me having to explain. Right. In there. <laughs> I always write a note to myself because I know that that's not, thank God, that's not a place that you usually stay forever. And it's not a place you can translate. When you get back to your normal self, you can't, it's like you lose contact with that self, but that's the self that you need help for, right? So when I get back to my daytime, happy, whatever, pretending self that goes into these appointments, I think of myself as the advocate for that down self, right? I'm there for her. And so I need her words to show the person. So that has helped me so much to, and, and, and then I used to write notes, not just from my down self to my up self, but from my up self to my down self, because sometimes in those rock bottom moments, it's like that those are, those are moments of hopelessness and hopelessness is dangerous because hopelessness lies. Hopelessness says it will never get better. This is it. No one loves you. This is the end. Like it says scary shit to you. Mm-hmm. And it forgets, hopelessness forgets. It forgets that actually last week you were okay. It forgets that last week you were petting your dog and you were in love with your life. And what, like, so it lies and it's for, it forgets. So if I have a note from my up self during those times, that helps me, right? Like, you know, Glennon, don't forget, you love your life. You, you know, um, 10 minutes with your dogs, things that, things that, that remind me of who I am when I'm not in that place. I just, the practice of keeping reminders of both of those selves has helped me translate myself to the world in ways that actually have probably saved my life because I tend Erica to be that person who goes into therapy and is like, actually, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. I'm fine. I'm awesome. How are you? Like, how's your family? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That totally resonates. And what you're saying about writing yourself these notes, you know, are you suggesting post-its around the house or is this inside of a journal that you're coming back to? Well, we have, it's in, there's, there's spaces in the journal to do it. I have a little box, this little box that my dad made me forever ago where I keep little notes. But I also think if this is, I just, I think people should be getting their insides out all the time. Like for me, when you say, if you were like, Glenn, where do you keep your, your notes? I, I would have to tell you like 40,000 places all over my house, like in my computer, in 49 journals in, in post-its all over my, like everywhere, because getting the insides out is so important, but to me for survival, but I just think for everybody, I mean, if, if it's this, if it's my journal, great. If it's not, if it's something else. I think the practice, it's like we have these two selves. We have this representative self who goes out into the world and has to say all the things and stay on script and perform and, and, and be all of these things. And that's the part of ourselves that the world can see. But we have this whole other self, right? That like, that is inside of us that nobody gets to see if we don't pull it out somehow. And that's why art moves us. And that's why great writing moves us. And that's why dance moves us. And that's why all of the, it's, it's like why when we see somebody just tell the truth in a way we're so unused to, it moves us so much. It's because we're seeing somebody's real self. We're like, it's like they're the equivalent of breaking that, that wall, right? It's like when we can see that somebody has put aside their representative self, gone off script and pulled who they are out from the inside, it moves us. And, and, and women, people, human beings should do that for themselves. Like it is possible to move yourself when you actually, you know, the first time I wrote words on a piece of paper, I I remember, I felt more like I was looking into a mirror than I ever do when I'm actually looking into a mirror. Like when I'm looking into a mirror, mostly I'm thinking, okay, like how have I conformed to 
white supremacist beauty issues today. Like that, like literally that's what we're doing. We're creating a self that matches cultural expectations when we look into a mirror, right? But there's a way art is a place where we actually get to see our real self. And that is, nobody gets to do it. Just artists get to do it and that's it. But everybody should get to do it. And what I'm seeing is women who have only identified in terms of their roles. Who am I? I'm a mother. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a worker. I'm a friend. I'm a whatever. The old roles, 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 roles. Like you ask a woman who she is, she will tell you what she does and who she loves. But there is a whole nother self that is the soul of a woman that is beneath all of those roles she plays. And that is what in one way or another, I think everybody's got to be able to see themselves. I really feel that so much. And I, I want to know how, how you explore your own feelings. You know, how do you actually go about feeling the feelings and then getting them out of you? Oh, (laughs) so I used to be so scared shitless of my feelings, Erica. I, I think that's what addiction was for me. It was like, and I don't think people talk about that enough. It's like addicts, we, we, we end up being very like insensitive human beings like, because we're hurting everyone in our lives and people are like, why don't they love us? And why are they doing these horrible things? And so people, you know, we end up in this place where a lot of the people that we love think we're insensitive liar assholes. And we do get to that place often. But I think what's really fascinating is that we usually start off as like super highly sensitive truth tellers, right? We start off, we were like, you know, more exposed nerves, most of us, which is why we started the addiction because the addiction numbs, 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 numbs feelings. So when I got sober for the first time, it was awful. And nobody talks about that enough either because everyone holds out sobriety as if it's going to be this amazing experience where everything is going to be better and all your problems are going to be solved. And actually early sobriety is the hardest time in the world because everything you've been hiding from forever starts to surface again. And all the feelings you've been numbing start to hurt again. And it's nightmarish for a while and then it's magic. Okay. So you just have to like hang in there for the nightmarish part. But I was so scared of my feelings because I believed that if I really let myself feel the trauma of my past or the fear for my future or all of my, that I would die. Like, I think I actually had this like underlying feeling like that if I there was like this manhole in the road and that was called my feelings. And my job was to just circle the manhole, step side, the manhole pat, like not go there and I'd be fine. And so when I started to get sober, I realized that, I mean, basically I was pregnant with Chase. I wanted to become a mom. And I just, there's a part of me that understood, okay, if I want this beautiful thing, then I have to freaking learn to survive the brutal parts of life. Like I understood deeply that I was not, I couldn't have one or the other, that I was going to have to have both or neither. So the way that I started practicing on my feelings, I haven't talked about this forever. I would allow myself, I would make myself, I should say, lay down on my little bed when I was getting sober. It's like big belly because I was so pregnant And I would make myself listen to one Indigo Girl song at a time. (laughs) (laughs) The deep gayness of this is just like. How did I not know that I was so (laughs) effing queer? Okay. The the signs were like really just, just flashing signs. Okay. But, but I, I still, I still listen to the Indigo Girls every single day at some point. There's something about them that just, there's something about them. I don't know what it could have been. No, but also, but also they're like, because it was, yes, it was their queerness, but it wasn't just their queerness in sexuality like that. It was like their queerness in everything. It was like their rebellion and their resistance and their, all of it just like, but it made me feel a lot. And I was only able to feel within five minute containers at that point. And then I had to shut it off again. And that's how I started to learn how to feel was like one song at a time. 
And music still Fs me up, Erica. Like I have to listen to music all day, except sometimes if I'm like going to down self, I will be like, don't anybody, like if anybody turns on music in my house, I'll be like off, can't take it. No, 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 no. Glennon, I'm going to stop you there and say same. Really? Literally. Oh no, I'm not kidding. Seriously. When I'm going through a really bad time, I can't listen to any music No, no. because as soon as, because to me, like music is my direct line to God, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And it's the direct line to feeling. And so I know I'm going through a good phase when I'm listening to a lot of music and I'm just letting. Yeah. And I know it's a little dark, but I'm like, "Mm, yeah, just driving in the car, no sound. Just listen to the sound of the car. (laughs) Or some like terrible, like news station that doesn't even make sense. And I'm like, and and Tish will be like, why are you listening to this? And I'll be like, because mommy's losing her shit. Like, because we're just, (laughs) because we are circling the manhole. Okay. We are sidestepping the manhole today. That's what we're doing. Well, it's funny that that you do that too. I've never met anyone else who avoided music when they were feeling feely. And that's, yep. Oh yeah. I hard, I hardcore avoid music. And it's actually a reminder for me to set up a little feeling pocket because there are certain songs that I will listen to that allow me to just really drop into the thing that needs to be released. And it, hearing you articulate the five minute indigo girl window is making me realize, Oh, like I have like a five minute tourist window. This is like one artist that I really like if I listen to her or Max Wagner or Jill Scott, like there's certain songs. If I listen to them, it'll just, it'll dump out some stuff and then it'll be over at like three minutes and 45 seconds. And I can just (laughs) go do. Because structure liberates. I think people who are like us, who are wildly like wild, (laughs) just need, we need to feel and be creative, but we know intrinsically that without any structure around it, it's like we'll we'll lose our grip or something. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the story we tell ourselves. And so there's something about the structure that liberates us to be our full feeling wild selves, knowing there's going to be a clear start and end. (laughs) Yes. Yes. What I'm kind of taking away from you right now is that if you can create a container that allows you to feel just a little bit of that hard feeling, that's how you can start to move with it. It's just kind of like bite by bite. It doesn't have to be this, like, you know, the next 30 days I'm going to like exercise this for my system. You know, you might be exercising for your system your whole life. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, if it's connected to deep trauma, that's what we do with therapists. We don't, I mean, the Indigo girls can do are real powerful, but they're not going to like solve our deep trauma. That's like stuff we have to get real with. But I also think there's this, and and I, I bet you agree with me on this, but I just think that there's also a deep belief system that we have to challenge and change, which is in our culture that we're supposed to be comfortable and easy and happy all the time, which, because then I, I just feel like there's this feeling that people have, which is, I don't know how to have my hard feelings because, you know, it might take too long or like, it'll make me inconvenient or it'll make me less accommodating or it'll make me less able to perform or, or, or create or, you know, just, we just live in a culture that promises us that success is, looks like happiness and, and joy and gratitude all the time. And so one of the reasons we don't allow ourselves to feel our hard feelings is because we think we have, the world will give us seven minutes to feel them. And then we have to get back to like happy snappy, which is kind of true. The world does tell us that, but it's bullshit. Like when, sometimes when I, I'm not talking about depression here. I'm just talking about feeling. Sometimes when I'm having hard feelings, I am not productive and I am not accommodating and I'm not even available, you know? And I have like, I am hell bent on insisting that that is my human right to feel and to retreat and to take care of myself and to allow all of that. And, and when I, and whenever I allow it, that's a release too, like you were talking about before. I mean, if we don't, if, if we, we have pain or we have anger or we have fear 
and then we add a layer of shame to it, which is I'm not supposed to be feeling these things, then it all just hardens and stays forever. You know, it like becomes like the layers, like the earth, like it just, but if we just, just, just say, I'm going to allow myself the freedom and permission to just let, let this take me on whatever journey it needs to knowing that it'll go. It not only feels like a way to travel lighter eventually, but I've just found that most of my hard feelings are better. Te- they're less comfortable. They're like painful house guests, but they are more helpful and instructive in the long run than any of the easy feelings are. They teach me more about myself and the world and make me softer and gentler and kinder and more connected in the long run when I let them come and go. How do you really deal with shame? How do you find a way to sit with it more comfortably? I think I think some of the things that you mentioned definitely can help around it, but is there any kind of practice that you've developed around just dealing with shame specifically? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that I think that people who go through any sort of organized recovery program, which I have several times, several different ones, you just learn in a million different ways that shame is the enemy. It's not pain. It's not being unlikable. It's not, it, it's, it's the shame is what takes us out of the game, right? It's not the pain. And I definitely know, you know, people have a lot of different priorities and, and I have one main priority in my entire life, which is sobriety. All I have to do is stay sober. It's literally all I have to do because I'm a pretty decent human being. And so if I'm sober, the rest of it, everything else is going to be all right. My family's going to be all right. My job's going to be all right. My, I'm sober. The center holds for me. And the only thing that threatens my sobriety is shame. I have learned that it's like the shame of, and what I mean by that is me trying to pretend that I'm somebody I'm not. So lies about who I am presenting myself in one way or another, that isn't true, but also the shame that comes with like overworking, because when I'm overworking or over like trying to fit myself into like this capitalistic idea that I am what I produce and that I time is money and all of that shit. And I'm pretending that I'm somebody that I'm not because I can't handle that. Like my, I actually can't like my, who I am as a human being can't live that way. It it may starts to make me anxious and sick, like almost immediately when I get into that. So, so it, it is shame that keeps me doing that when I know, because I'm, I'm ashamed that I'm a human being who can't survive that way. So I just pretend that I am. Right. So it's like any form of shame. I I think we think of shame as like this thing that just means I'm very, I wish I didn't do the thing I did or I'm bad. But shame also shows up in ways where we're pretending to be someone we're not because we're ashamed of saying, I can't do that. That's not healthy for me. Even if that's what the world expects, it doesn't work for me. You know, that, that I learned that when I was in high school. I had been bulimic for so long. I was so fucking sick and the worst place in the entire world to me, like this little slice of hell on earth was the high school cafeteria. Okay. It was like this combination of every vulnerability on earth. It was like, I didn't know who to sit. Oh my God, Erica. I swear to God. I think I had this dream last night. (laughs) I think I dreamed this last night because I'm like, why does this feel so fresh? This is okay. If it was, it was this week at some point, but it was like that moment of holding my tray, not knowing I went to a huge school, not knowing where I should sit. If they'd talk to me, the the food on your plate, is so vulnerable. The like eating all of it was like every vulnerability at once. And so this particular day I took my, I used to actually sometimes just go in the bathroom and eat because I couldn't deal with the trauma. This one day I actually marched my little tray down to a guidance counselor's office. I had never even been in the guidance counselor's office before I had to introduce myself. And I said, I'm so sick and I can't handle high school anymore. 
I know it seems to be working for everyone else, but this place doesn't make any sense to me and I can't take it anymore. And I'm not leaving this office until somebody gets me some help. until somebody takes me away. That's how I ended up in the mental hospital, which is a whole nother story. And it was an actual mental institution because back then they didn't have a lot of like personalized eating disorder places, but it was a good one. My parents were both teachers and had enough resources to get me. We had insurance and all of that. But I think about that moment all the time because it was the bravest moment of my entire life. It was the most shame busting moment of my entire life because I was so ashamed that I couldn't seem to handle the Lord of the Flies high school life that I just kept going and pretending that I could and be getting sicker and sicker and sicker and getting sadder and sadder and more lonely and more confused about the world until I was finally like, I don't care if this seems to be working for everyone else on earth. I'm not ashamed to say, I can't do this anymore. This place is crazy to me. The mental hospital is less crazy to me. It was, it was much less crazy to me. And so that my shame belief, Abby and I believe that everyone has like some sort of deep shame belief of something that they were taught when they were a kid, that they're spending their entire life trying to disprove, right? So Abby was raised a gay kid in a Catholic family. Hers is constantly like this God battle. Like, does God, what is God? Does God love me? Am I an abomination? Am I going to be cursed someday for this? Like, whatever, it's her. It's this God thing with being gay. And mine is that I'm crazy because my brain works differently than everyone else around me has seemed to work since I was a kid. <laughs> right? And there are things, yeah. And there are things that I can do that other people can't do. And there are things that other people can do that I can't do. Right. And, and because I spend a lot of my formative years in offices, in medication, in hospital, in whatever. So that's Erica why the refrain from Untamed is you're not crazy, you're a goddamn cheetah. Like that's, that's to myself, right? It's become like if, if Abby were to write her Untamed, it would be you are, you are not an abomination. You are beloved and perfect, right? It's like, what is the thing that you deeply believe about yourself? Because and then, then, then what is the thing that you're replacing it with, right? So I think like that sentence or reminder, which has resonated with so many women for different reasons. I mean, I think some people think of it as just like a reaction or resistance to the gaslighting of women in the world. But for me, it was just a reminder to my little high school self walking into that guidance counselor's office that was like, you're not crazy. High school's freaking crazy. Like how, you know, how many places are we in where we think we're crazy because we can't make it work? But how many of those places are actually crazy? (laughs) Exactly. And, (laughs) and I think just a reminder to stay curious, to stay soft and to actually reconnect with these pivotal moments that feel too far away to go back to, to resource from. And where do you need to go to resource from your own adventure, from your own experience? Because I think, especially as we get older, there's this feeling of I'm going to get braver. And I like, I'm going to like read this book. I'm going to do this journal thing. And then like, in like, you know, two years, I'm going to be doing it, you know, and I'm going to be brave then. But I, I think actually if, if we can have the resilience and the softness to just look back, we've been brave a lot. So yes. There's a lot that's there. Yes. And we think about, I tend to think, cause I could look at that time, Erica, and be like, oh my God, what a shit show I was. Like, I was so, I hurt these people. I did this. I was not, I didn't, I wasn't even present for my life. I was in the hospital and blah, blah, But look, every single time you have survived some trauma like that in your life, it's because you got yourself to survival. Like instead of focusing on all of the, you know, shit, like there's, what was the moment that you freaking got yourself to survival? Like 
every single person listening to this, 100% of everyone listening has survived. And that is a testament to who we are. That, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm like allergic to, to the self-help that's, that tells us that, Erica. That's like, just do these five things and you're going to be better. Like, okay, fool me once, fool me 49,000 times, shame on me. Like, I will still, I know there's no answer. I know there's no formula. But Erica, if you give me a freaking quiz that says, take this quiz and you'll be a happier person. I'm like, click, 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 click. I like, still believe it on some level. But what I really think is that I don't think that anybody needs to get braver or better. I think we all just have to like see who we actually are so that we can marvel at how strong and brave we already are and have been to get ourselves to this place. That's what I don't, I, I don't want women to get better or improve. I think that what we have to do is stop that mess, right? Because that's like, that's the cheetah chasing the, the, the bunny, right? Like those are the dirty pink bunnies that like our culture would have us keep chasing forever. You know, you have to be successful. You have to be this. You have to be that. You have to be that. You have to be that. Actually, what if everything we need is just like right here, right now? And we have like this un, unending resource of goodness and strength that is inside of us. And the only reason that we don't know that is because we live in a culture that doesn't want us to be still and tap into that because that is not, you can't sell that, right? It's like, if we have to keep taking a 7 trillion classes and trips and adventures to find ourselves, then there's lots of industries that can be made around that. But like, what if at the end of the day, because I will tell you the only thing that's ever had me survive over time is returning to stillness and deep, deep knowing. It's never been anything out there. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Glennon Doyle. I hope you'll pick up a copy of Get Untamed. It's really stunning and I highly recommend it. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.